0: Although World War II ended more than 75 years ago, it continues to cast a shadow over Western politics. The determination to never again repeat the horrific crimes of Nazi Germany and Communist Soviet Union helped establish liberal democracy as the only legitimate and acceptable form of government. But the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and the increased visibility of leftist groups like Antifa have led many to fear that those frightening 20th-century movements are once again on the rise. This fear has led to a 70-year-old book of political philosophy becoming a surprise bestseller, Hannah Arendt's 1951 work The Origins of Totalitarianism. Hannah Arendt was born in Germany and lived through Hitler's rise to power and eventual defeat. In the years following the war, she wrote this book to understand the nature of the Nazi and Soviet regimes. What were the circumstances and context in which she began work on the origins of totalitarianism?
1: The circumstance uh, is a incredibly complex and at the same time quite simple. Uh, it is the question, how could this have happened?
0: This was a question that many in the Western world were asking. How could something as horrific and barbaric as the Holocaust happen in a place as supposedly enlightened as Germany?
1: If you think about modern philosophy, for example, uh, modern Western philosophy, you know, Europe was the center. If you think about the sciences, you know, if you wanted to become, you know, a, a scientist, you would go to a university in Germany, you would learn German, and then you would study chemistry, you know, in German in Germany, for example. So how could it be that at the heart of, a, you know, Everything culture and everything uh, sophistication and refinement a uh, this menace of a uh, of brutish political thought of you know primitive uh, racist backwatered way of thinking um, uh, takes a hold and not only takes a hold but is able within a short period of time to really uh, 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 you know, wipe away all other modes of, of thinking and acting, uh, creating concentration camps in which uh, people who think differently and, and, and live their lives differently uh, are placed. Uh, how, how can we explain it?
0: Arendt also wanted to understand if it could happen again.
1: Accompanied with her, I think, is the sense that although the war ended, Second World War in 1945, and although we were liberated from the menace of fascism, none of the underlying circumstances which made fascism and totalitarianism possible disappeared from the world. And I think this is really crucial for us in today's discussion we're having now uh, to underline this. I think as Arendt is writing this book, It's not just a historical account of what had happened. It's an attempt to understand the contemporary modern condition, the contemporary modern human condition, as a bringing time and again the danger of what we have seen in Europe uh, from the 1920s onward. And in fact, if you read the book today, I think a lot of the questions she raises there are with us in the same way they were when she was writing it in the late 40s until its publication in 1951. Welcome to Writ
0: Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Amir Eschel to discuss Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism.
1: So, Hannah Arendt uh, is born uh, in Germany in 1906, Uh, grew up uh, in a setting of a middle-class German-Jewish family. Uh, Both her parents are close to social democracy uh, in Germany. Uh, and are involved in the political uh, conversations of the time. Arendt's
0: father was an electrical engineer, and her mother came from a family of tea importers. They were both members of the Social Democrats, a leftist political party in Germany at the
1: time. Her father uh, died when, you know, she was relatively young, so she grows up uh, with her mother. Uh, her mother, a very impressive, strong personality, uh, brings her closer to social democracy, uh, makes sure that um, Arendt was already, as a child, very gifted. She begins early on to study classical languages and discovers philosophy. She reads Kierkegaard, and, and then as a young woman, Um, A rumor arrives at her doorsteps, and the rumor is that there is this uh, very intriguing, interesting young philosopher teaching philosophy in Marburg, and his name is Martin Heidegger.
0: Today, Martin Heidegger is regarded as one of the greatest philosophers in history. But at the time, the young Heidegger was just beginning his career. But his reputation was growing fast. Arendt described him as, quote, the hidden king who reigned in the realm of thinking. She decided to attend the University of Marburg in order to study with Heidegger.
1: She arrives in Marburg um, as a 17-year-old young woman um, and starts taking classes with him. And as it so happens... um, Uh, She falls in love, or they fall in love, uh, and there's a stormy uh, affair between them. Martin Heidegger is married already uh, with kids and um, does not want to change his life uh, in a radical manner. Um, Hannah Arendt and he together decide that uh, the affair cannot be continued. Um, and she goes off to complete her dissertation uh, with Jaspers. Uh, in Heidelberg, Jaspers is a close friend of uh, Heidegger at that time. So uh, Jaspers uh, takes on the, you know, the, the, the responsibility for her intellectual, uh, for the completion of uh, that part of in, her intellectual uh, track.
0: Karl Jaspers was a psychiatrist and philosopher and a proponent of many strands of existentialist thought. Arendt studied with Jaspers until the end of her education.
1: Arendt is a young, gifted um, philosophy student. By now she's graduated, uh, cannot simply pursue an academic career. From today's perspective, uh, it's almost uh, you know, unfathomable. But uh, back then, um, women could not just decide that they become professors of philosophy. After
0: completing her studies, Arendt married German philosopher Gunther Stern.
1: And so after her marriage, um, she goes off to Berlin and uh, spends time in Berlin together with her husband then, um, conducting research for what will be later on her first book um, on a Jewish intellectual uh, by the name Rachel van Hagen. She works in the libraries and is a part of Berlin's intellectual uh, community. One thing Arendt was researching was anti-Semitism.
0: The Nazi party was coming to power, and Arendt understood that it would have a massive effect on Europe. The regime also had an immediate impact on her own life. Researching anti-Semitism was illegal, and she was imprisoned by the Gestapo soon after Hitler came to
1: power. Luckily, the officer who interviews her warns her of the danger to her security and life, uh, and she decides to pack her things and, together with her mother, uh, escape uh, Germany.
0: Arendt flees Germany for France and ends up in Paris among a community of émigrés. There, she divorces her first husband and marries the German
1: poet Heinrich Blücher. And she hopes that from the perspective of exile in Paris, uh, things will be different uh, for her. Uh, Little did she know and expect, uh, you know, the Second World War breaks out. Uh, She will then flee France and flee Europe and land as a refugee without any rights, obviously, as a stateless person, because her citizenship was revoked by Nazi Germany. Uh, She arrives then at the shores of the United States.
0: Arendt arrived in New York City in 1941. She pursued a career as an independent scholar, lecturing and teaching at various institutions, and of course, writing. So let's talk about the structure of the the text itself. what is it like to read it? How did she organize it? And, and what are her core arguments?
1: So we have three parts that are tied together. So I think rather than thinking of the book as bringing finite, conclusive explanations for the Second World War, for totalitarianism, one should think of it as offering three perspectives on the phenomenon. She starts with a discussion of anti-Semitism as a a way of uh, mythologically thinking about social and historical conditions um, and a school of thought and a way of political action that is uh, aiming at and, and, and designed to exclude Um, not just a group of people who are associated by this way or another, uh, but rather an entire class of human beings uh, defined by their uh, religion, defined by their ethnicity, defined to some extent by this um, terrible concept of race.
0: Is it that Jewish populations in particularly European societies are a useful enemy for those interested in forging a more distinctive national identity or nationalism?
1: Jews, for a variety of historical reasons, were the perfect enemy. They have become, in the course of modernity, especially in Eastern Europe, in, you know, to put it in somewhat blunt terms, they have become simply a, obsolete. They had no longer a clear function in the economical and social system Uh, uh, of, especially, you know, Eastern Europe. Um, They were moving around. Uh, They suffered from, you know, uh, poverty and and had no chances, etc. And then in in the West, in Western Europe, uh, Jews have become, with emancipation, uh, incredibly successful, occupying, you know, leading positions in society, in culture, in the sciences, so this combination of a, a, a large groups of Jewish populations uh, that seem to be obsolete, wandering around, traveling from east to west, you know, roaming the streets of, you know, Vienna and Berlin, etc., combined with the figure of the Jew who kind of made it, uh, they have became very quickly a, a perfect a enemy. In
0: the second section of her book, Arendt examines contemporary totalitarianism from the perspective of modern colonialism.
1: Arendt, one should say, is one of the first thinkers of our time who turns a a very concentrated attention to the phenomenon of colonialism. So way before anyone was talking about uh, colonialism the way we're familiar with today, post-colonialism, the entire post-colonial discourse. She was writing in 1951 or publishing in 1951 on the issue of colonialism. And then she turns from anti-Semitism and colonialism, so part one and part two, to the phenomenon of totalitarianism, where she uh, explains, again, she offers a variety of facets, or she unfolds a variety of facets of this political system uh, we witnessed uh, in Nazi Germany, and then in Stalinist uh, Soviet Union. Uh, And again, this is a very original move she makes in part three of Origins. She thinks that one cannot separate fascism uh, from Stalinism, from Bolshevikism, one has to think them together uh, as a closely related phenomenon. centering on the evolution of political systems in our time, in modernity, in a way that penetrates all realms of our lives.
0: One of the key points Arendt makes in the third section of Origins is the distinction between public and private life in the modern era.
1: And because of modern technology and because of the way the economy works, you know, this is, you know, often just undone. Uh, and we lose the ability to retreat to the realm of the private and to exist as, as, as private. Everything becomes public. Everything is then, you know, light is, is, is shed everywhere. Um, one of the consequences of it is that uh, it's much easier than to those who control the public sphere to then subjugate individuals in ways that were never possible Uh, before. I think Arendt has a clear sense of this, although she was not aware of, you know, uh, smartphones and things like that. Uh, I think she, uh, thinking about the modern era, she was well aware of such possibilities from what happens uh, inside our private uh, sphere, our apartments, our houses, to the way we interact each other in any given circumstances. And Arendt says in part three of Origins, again, dedicated to totalitarianism, uh, that this system of rule, um, unprecedented in its thrust and brutality, uh, hardly explainable with the means of political theory, uh, is with us to stay. So, again, although in 1945 Nazi Germany was defeated uh, and the menace of Nazism uh, was gone, uh, the threat, uh, but also the reality of this system uh, has not gone away. And in fact, when the book is published, again, 1951, Stalin is still uh, in power uh, and the Soviet Union is governed by a, a political terror the likes of which the world has never seen before.
0: What is the thread that connects anti-Semitism, colonialism, and what she calls totalitarianism? Why do you think she framed it that way?
1: I would, I would suggest that the first two laid the social and political ground for, you know, what gave birth to totalitarianism. Without the Uh, the the viciousness and the visceral nature of anti-Semitism without the attack on the Jew, not just in terms of uh, the Jew's, you know, creed and beliefs, but really as a body, uh, we cannot understand what had happened in Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. The same goes to colonialism. uh, Without understanding the way, the manners in which European powers were able to produce a system of uh, conquer, subjugation, humiliation, exploitation, uh, with all the means of the state to the very last detail and without the ideology that colonialism uh, always relied on, this ideology of bringing Europe's vision and Europe's mission to the world, Again, we cannot understand uh, what had happened uh, in Europe uh, later on. So I think the way to understand part one and part two is um, to understand it as a, a, you know, uncovering the foundations, the groundwork, on top of which then the edifice of, of totalitarianism then uh, emerged.
0: One of the main threats to a totalitarian regime is community. Totalitarianism thrives on controlling every aspect of people's lives. In a community, people get together to talk about ideas and to try to solve their communal problems. To minimize this threat, totalitarian governments remove the public spaces altogether.
1: So the disappearance of anything from a, 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 like a coffee place where people get together to the disappearance of a public square where people come together, to the threat to universities, to the integration of fear and terror, even into schools. So everywhere where people can freely meet and talk and discuss with each other who they are, what they are, what they believe in, uh, is coming under increasing uh, pressure. Um, I think this is really the root of all evil. Once you undo these spaces in which we're able to come together and really exchange our ideas and debate with one another uh, and have those political discussions, uh, almost everything is then possible. If people do not leave their homes because they're fearful of what will happen to them, if they're in a cafe or a restaurant or a library or a you know, public reading of a book, uh, then it's much easier for those who are in power to then enter and occupy the last available space. You can
0: see this pattern in many totalitarian regimes, including the fascist movements in Italy and Spain and Germany. By identifying these patterns and recognizing the warning signs, Arendt aims to make readers more aware of their history, how totalitarianism operates, and how to steer their governments in the right direction moving forward.
1: She wants us to not delude ourselves to be thinking that we're just, you know, subjected to history, but rather to understand that we have a responsibility to do whatever we can do in the course of historical events. So every time we catch ourselves thinking of history as that which comes at us with enormous power threatening to just crush us, we should stop for a second and remind ourselves that we actually do have the capacity. And thus the responsibility to participate in shaping historical realities.
0: What was the reception when it came out?
1: One has to understand that Arendt was rejected by many because A, she was not an established scholar. Not in the field of history, not in the field of political science. She did not help, you know, hold a, a position at the university. She was this European emigre who, as a freelance writer, sat down and wrote this mammoth work, you know, uh, claiming to explain to us what had just befell, you know, a global, global history. Overall, people understood, intellectuals and scholars understood that this is an important intervention. Right after she published it, she began to be invited, you know, to give talks, to attend conferences, uh, to, you know, have various appointments as, you know, teaching, you know, visiting uh, professorships at various places. And because she was this very lively, you know, sharp-minded intellectual, you know, very quickly she emerged as a powerful voice uh, in American intellectual life.
0: After the origins of totalitarianism, she continued to write on these themes. In 1963, she published Eichmann in Jerusalem about the trial of Nazi lieutenant colonel Otto Adolf Eichmann. In that book, she explains how the ordinary Germans carrying out Nazi policies, like Eichmann, were not inherently evil people with dark, bloodthirsty hearts. Instead, they were simply normal people. But totalitarian regimes can cause even normal, otherwise good people to do terrible things because it just becomes their job. It was an uncomfortable, controversial argument.
1: And I think to a certain extent, uh, her death in 1975, for a while at least, together with the Eichmann book, uh, obscured her somewhat from our sight and attention. Uh, and for a few decades, um, people did not read a lot Arendt, or only a few did in intellectual circles. She was not that uh, much discussed and not uh, that much regarded. Following the collapse of the Berlin Wall, 1989, and following 9-11, there was this you know, resurgence of interest in her entire work. And often we go back to the origins uh, as a major achievement, people turn to Arendt as someone who can really uh, offer us very important points of departure in thinking through uh, the circumstances uh, of our time. Um, It's not that she had everything right. It's not that every uh, item, you know, in this uh, 478, 479 pages is, is correct, historically speaking. But the questions she's asking and the perspectives she's opening uh, are still valid today. When we are thinking about the poisoning of a Russian politician, uh, as they were, uh, you know, nineteen fifty one, uh, in with in, when we are thinking about how to react to uh, the elections in in Belarus, in which you know uh, a set of of lies uh, are used in order to. Help a despot uh, to remain uh, in power. Um, to to name only two, you know, very recent uh, examples.
0: One legacy of the origins of totalitarianism is that it revealed that the past is never fully past. Imagine a cocktail party. Someone walks up to you and says, uh, "Professor Eshel, how did um, origins of totalitarianism change the world?" It
1: changed the world. Because it made it clear to us that first, the end of the Second World War is not the end of total uh, control, total rule, the drive for total domination. It taught us that this cloud, this shadow, this prospect um, is always with us each and every single day. Totalitarianism added worse. Yes, Nazi Germany, Stalinist, Soviet Union, but it it never went away and it will never go away. It's it's there to stay. It's writing history not as a story of that which had happened and is past, but writing history now to speak with Faulkner along the lines of a past that is never dead. In fact, it's never even passed.
0: It's so tempting, and you still see it with a figure like Hitler, to say, oh, this is singular evil, singular badness. We're not like them. And I hear in your teaching of Arendt a a more challenging truth, which is that we live in a time in which that danger is always with us. And unless we're vigilant, it could return at any time.
1: I could not agree more. And by the way, Arendt wanted to call the book elements of totalitarianism and not origins. Again, you know, we go back to the notion of facets, various facets of the phenomenon. So I think elements of totalitarianism are not just what we see in the political arena. We see elements of totalitarianism also in what we call, you know, the corporate world. There are corporations out there and I won't, you know, mention names. I think the names are kind of obvious in which one person determines, dictates, you know, prescribes, controls in ways that I think bear every single threat that a totalitarian regime does. So also in this regard, Arendt, I think, has a lot to say to us.
0: Arendt's book remains influential because she revealed horrifying yet timeless truths about human nature. And she showed how totalitarian regimes can form given the right conditions. But for Arendt, this book was more than just a warning.
1: You know, in many ways, it's a very bleak book. Because it displays, you know, some of the most, how shall I put it, you know, a difficult to absorb facts about what humans are capable of. You know, the book is a mirror to us. I think at the end of the book, there's obviously the danger that one would, you know, end on a very, you know, desperate note, you know, asking, you know, her or himself, what is it that, you know, that can be done? But then she writes the last paragraph, and for me, you know, this is usually when I teach end, you know, this is usually where I begin, you know, with the last paragraph. And she says, but there remains also the truth that every end in history necessarily contains a new beginning. This beginning is the promise, the only message which the end can ever Produce. Beginning, before it becomes a historical event, is the supreme capacity of men. Politically, it is identical with man's freedom. Initium ud esset homo creatus est, that a beginning be made, man was created, said Augustine. This beginning is guaranteed by each new birth. It is indeed every man.
0: History provides us with lessons from the past. By learning about the successes and failures of earlier times, we can imagine and construct a brighter future. Arendt revealed how one very dark reality can develop under the right conditions. By learning from her text, we can, if we choose, Steer humanity in a direction that works for all. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fairon Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pechy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production you can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.